Hello and welcome into another episode of All In with Adam. My sincerest apologies for taking a month off. That was not uh, that was not my intention to leave gaps uh, of content that were this big on any platform that I run. But that's what happened because uh, the last man two to three weeks have just been an absolute blur. So as some of you guys probably saw I got married. I got married in Seaverville, Tennessee, uh, to my now wife Kelly. That we got legally married. I don't know, a couple a couple of months ago. Uh, I would highly recommend doing that, by the way. It makes the wedding a lot less stressful if you're already legally married, at least. Um, also, getting married out of state kind of complicated. So we decided to do that part here, and then we had our actual wedding um, out in Tennessee in the Smoky Mountains. So in this episode, I'm going to spend a little bit of time. I'll tell you about the wedding, just some insights and cool stories and things that happened on that trip, and hopefully to offer an explanation as to why I had to take so much time off from putting out uh, new episodes of this podcast and any drum content as well. Um, and then I want to launch into, uh, in this episode, a little bit of wedding slash marriage philosophy, because as with most big life decisions, I have to spend, you know, between two and five years thinking about it before I end up doing anything. So uh, Kelly and I have been together uh, eight years. We got married on our eight-year anniversary. And uh, if you haven't seen her episode, by the way, you can get to know her a little better in in her episode. It's just titled Kelly. You know, but marriage was something I had to put a lot of thought into. You know, it was not something that I, I took lightly. And there's a lot of philosophy, I suppose, that goes into, at least for me, uh, what it is to be married. What does this promise actually mean? Should you do it? Why should anybody do it? Uh, what's the value of it? And what are we actually committing to do? So we'll get into that a little bit later. Um, also in this episode, there's a few Easter eggs, some some interesting things that happened from this wedding week. And I'm going to share those as we get a little bit deeper into this episode. But I think those will be Somewhat of some some curveballs in an episode like this. And then I have uh, a few future episode topics that I want to pitch to you. So these are some ideas that I've been tossing around uh, as some potential future episodes, and I'd love to get your opinions on those, so I'll share those with you a little bit closer to the end of this podcast. But for now, let's hop into this wedding. So we got engaged nine months ago, something like that. We didn't want to be engaged that long because we've already been together for eight years, and we did a bunch of stuff out of order. We bought a house and got bank accounts and got pets together. We did all of that shit long before we actually um, got engaged or got married. So we didn't see any purpose of staying engaged for like a couple years. We started planning the wedding on the road trip back from where we got engaged. So we got engaged in Georgia, and on that road trip, which was like seven or eight hours, we were already looking into venues and trying to book things and uh, you know talking out all sorts of different ideas. So we always knew that we wanted a small wedding because... You know, Kelly and I have been to several weddings. It just happens more and more as you get older. You get close to, you know, 30 plus. A whole bunch of people start getting married. So you go to weddings a lot. And we always found that the bigger the wedding, the less we enjoyed it. When there's 120 or 200 people at a wedding, you know, it really sucks the most for the bride and groom because you don't get to hang out with any of your friends. I mean, you get very little FaceTime with 100 plus people in one night. I mean, how much time can you really spend interacting with anybody? And so we would go to weddings like that, and even though we were close with the bride and groom, or we had other friends there, you know, you might spend a couple minutes talking to them, and then they're out. They gotta go talk to somebody else, or take photos, or do something else. Um, And it just felt like, man, we could get away with a lot less chaos and a lot higher quality of time spent with our friends if we went small. So I think we invited somewhere between 40 and 45 people, and we had about 35 people show up. Uh, So that was very, very cool. Also, your money goes a lot further when there's less people. This just applies to any party in general. But we could budget more money per person for things like food and alcohol and whatever everybody wanted to do. Uh, So our money went a lot further with less people. 
it was just uh, the right way to do it, man. So if you're on the fence about how big your wedding should go, your wedding should be, I would say go smaller. Um, we really enjoyed that part of it, and we got tons of FaceTime and hang time with everybody that was there. It didn't feel like anybody had wasted their time coming across the country to go to a wedding to have a three-minute conversation. We got to spend 20, 30, 40 minutes with like every guest there, so that was uh, it made it really special. Now, one of the most complicated things about doing this wedding the way that we did was that we pretty much took on everything ourselves. I mean, we hired a a caterer to come drop food off, and we hired a photographer and videographer. By the way, I'll have some of those pictures throughout this podcast, though I don't have all of them back. We're waiting on like 600 edits, so that's gonna be a little while. But, you know, all decorations, Kelly did herself. And that alone is huge. You know, we decided to make all of the drinks ourselves. Like, so there wasn't a lot of help um, in, in those planning phases, and we had nothing short of 1,500 pounds worth of shit to bring like 700 miles up into the Smoky Mountains. So I had to buy a cap for my Tundra. I'm calling it the war bus now. That's what it looks like. And I had to put a rack on top of that. Uh, So it was just absolutely loaded down. I got 11 miles to the gallon from Orlando to Severville, or Severville, sorry, uh, and Gatlinburg. So yeah, it was a it was a very very heavy truck full of a whole lot of shit, but totally worth doing. Uh, it was just something that required a, a a lot of planning, more than you would think, just to move that amount of stuff a quarter of the way across the country. But uh, we did it. So we got in on a Thursday. Friday was when we got keys to the big house that we rented. The house was, I want to say, it sleeps maybe 10 to 15 people, something like that. It's a three-story mansion. I mean, it's a mansion by my my definition. Anything with like over four bathrooms, I call that a mansion. Uh, but it was a super, super cool property, man. And it was kind of sort of built for weddings. There was a, a walkway that they had paved that goes down to like an overhang with this crazy mountain view. And there was like a little platform out there. It was like very clearly set up to have a wedding. So it was very cool. We were also able to have um, most of our close friends, like bridesmaids and, and groomsmen, stay inside the house with us. So that was really cool, sort of, you know, for the after party and waking up on Sunday. We had a ton of people that were still there spending time with us in the house. So it was a lot like a big, what well, reminds me kind of of like uh, the Nam drummer house that we would get. It's just a big Airbnb full of a bunch of friends. So that was the vibe for, you know, a ton of the trip. Now, one of the things that ended up being totally fine, but that kind of terrified us for most of this trip uh, was the weather. It went from 60, 70% chance of rain on Saturday, our wedding day. Uh, It went to 100% chance of rain by Friday night. Even Saturday morning, it was like 100% chance of rain all day. And somehow the sky just cracked open like two hours before the wedding and it was bright and sunny and it just disappeared. So it's one of those variables where there's nothing you can do if it pours raining, but you would have paid a lot of money if you <laughs> if you were able to orchestrate the weather differently. Uh, but we got really, really lucky. And honestly, the whole thing was was in almost every way flawless. And it's a combination of planning and doing everything that you're supposed to do to try and execute this like flawless party. Uh, But there was also a lot of things that were totally out of our control that went really, really well. So it's a mixture of like pride in your work because we put a ton of time and effort into this and you see that working. But then there's also like this universal gratitude because sometimes shit just goes wrong. That's absolutely no one's fault. And we had almost none of that happen. So that was really, really cool. 
One of the funnier stories from the actual day was on Friday, when we first got the keys to this big house, uh, we had, again, probably 1,500 pounds worth of stuff loaded up into this truck. And it all has to go in different places of the house because the like dinner was held in like the living room of this giant house uh, or kind of the dining room as well. But then on the porch, we had a bunch of things set up as well. Down on that platform, uh, we had to have a lot of like wedding stuff, the ceremony stuff put down there. And then, of course, we have clothes that go in our room and we've got groomsmen's gifts and bridesmaids gifts that have to go into their little areas. So we're all over this house uh, all day Friday. Me, Kelly, and of course, we had some help. We had maybe between five and 10 friends show up throughout the day on Friday to help us do that kind of stuff. And we were genuinely worried that Rhino was gonna be a problem for the wedding because he's so high energy. He just, he's the kind of dog that would just try and start a mosh pit during a wedding ceremony. (laughs) That would be very fitting for him. So we kind of had this thought that, man, on Friday while we're setting up and everybody's busy, uh, we're just gonna have to hand him off to people and say like, hey, can you just go walk this dog like a mile up the road and come back and then find someone else and hand him off so we could just wear him out so he would be tired on Saturday. But what I ended up doing was on, on Friday, we got there and we realized that this property was so isolated that there was really nowhere for him to go. I mean, I guess he could run off the side of a mountain or out into the woods, but I didn't think he would do that because he just wanted to be kind of where the party was. So... I put his weighted vest on him, which weighs seven or eight pounds. It's about 10, 10 or 12% of his body weight. And we just let him go. Now, this was a three-story house. So this dog spent between eight and 12 hours on Friday sprinting up and down three flights of stairs with a weighted vest. And I'm telling you, I have never once in my life seen a dog get this tired. By Friday night, it was like he couldn't even lift his paws off the ground, like just absolutely fucking dragging himself through this house. And so Saturday he woke up and he was like almost comatose, uh, which was just fucking perfect. If you knew this dog, it was like a totally different version of him. He was so tired that he kept trying to sleep on Kelly's wedding dress during the wedding ceremony. I mean, he would curl up like it was a bed and just fall asleep, even with like 30, 40 people all around him, didn't care. So that worked out awesome. It was another one of those like, ooh, we got lucky, we got lucky. So Friday was sort of the busy chaos day, nice and relaxing on Friday night. We had a bunch more friends come in late on Friday. Uh, We had to sort of shuffle everybody to bed, got up Saturday, and then that whole day was basically dedicated to the wedding. Uh, We had a few things to do Saturday morning, but for the most part, me and Kelly just kind of separated. She was on the top floor with all her bridesmaids. I was on um, in the basement with all of the groomsmen because they had a pool table and arcade machines down there. So of course, that's where the groomsmen would go. Uh, And then ceremony began at 5 p.m., And it's weird, man, that ceremony felt a lot like playing a show in that you definitely have some nerves. I wasn't that that nervous until it began when it like when you realize like, oh, shit, now now we're in it like it started, huh? Like once that happens, there's a heaviness. There's like a fucking reality blanket that kind of sinks over you. And yeah, man, it's uh, it was definitely a, a heavy not, I don't want to say a heavy moment because 30, 40 minutes is a lot longer than, than a single moment. Um, but there's just a weight to that entire event for sure. I wouldn't describe it as nervous. I would describe it more as like like powerful, right? Like you just feel like the, the energy of the moment is pretty undeniable, you know? And you can see it 
in everyone. Like everyone kind of feels that like existential drop that sort of happens. It's very strange. It was funny too because Kelly uh, is... Admittedly, she would admit that she's not really the best writer. She's not comfortable writing. And for me, that's one of my favorite things to do in the world. So most of the time, if she has to write something for work or for any project or anything that she's doing, I'll normally write that for her. But in this case, with vows, it's not really how that works. I can't help you write your own vows. So she had to write them. And man, she absolutely fucking smashed it. So we just kind of learned that like, she's an excellent writer. You just have to give her nine months to figure it out. So yeah, we did our vows, obviously tears all over the place, not just us, but all the groomsmen, all the bridesmaids, at least half of the audience. Um, I don't know, audience? It's our friends and family, so audience sounds weird. It's not like we don't know them, but yeah, man, it was it was a, a really a powerful ceremony from my perspective. And again, it, it felt like a show, like playing a show in that, it's just like you almost black out. Like it feels like it was 30 or 40 seconds. Like there's no way you can account for all 30 or 40 minutes of what happened. Now there is one lame thing that did happen that was absolutely nobody's fault. But my mom about a week or two before the wedding called me and she got COVID. And she got it about as bad, I had COVID in January 2020, so way over a year ago. And it sucked, but not any more or less than a normal flu is about how I would describe it. Um, I've definitely been more sick than that, and I've been less sick than that as well. So my mom got it, and it was kind of, you know, it was average. It was just a, a, a shitty flu. Is, is well, That was her experience. But, you know, there was sort of this, it was a toss-up of whether or not she would be contagious. And obviously, bringing a known contagious person to a wedding with a bunch of people from all over the country would be a very irresponsible thing to do. So she was sort of keeping me posted with her doctor because her doctor said, I'll, you know, I'll have to give you a yes or no if you're actually going to be contagious by the time this wedding uh, rolls around. And just a few days before, she went to go see her doctor and the doctor said, you're good. You're absolutely not contagious. You can go to the wedding. And so we were very excited. And then she got pneumonia. She got pneumonia from COVID. It gave her pneumonia. And the pneumonia was actually worse than COVID was for her. So my mom could not come to the wedding. There was just no realistic way that that could happen. And man, there's, there's, first of all, I guess I should clarify that my mom is the only family member that was actually invited to the wedding. Uh, I don't have any other extended family, aunts, uncles, grandparents. I have none of them that I'm close enough with to even invite to a wedding. So she was the only like blood relative of mine that was invited and she couldn't come. So that was definitely, I mean, I want to say words like bummer, but bummer's like a, it's a bummer when you stub your toe. You know, it, it's, it's heavier than that. Bummer's not the right word. It sucked. It sucked. The only time that it really got me, got me super heavy um, was when we did, you do like a groom and groom's mother dance. And I did that with Kelly's mom who sat in. And uh, that was rough. It was really rough. Not, not that there's anything wrong with Kelly's mom, but like that's not my mom, you know? So that was a rough one for sure. Um, one of those things that you can't go back and change, the wedding's over, and my mom wasn't there. But at the same time, I have no one to be mad at. I'm not mad at her. I'm not angry at the universe. It's one of those things that you have to just sort of shrug off and keep moving. If I could change it, I would, you know? Now, one of my favorite things about the wedding day itself, you know, the photographer gets there around like 2 p.m. and the ceremony's at 5, but there's a bunch of scheduled shit that the photographer and the videographer have to do um, in this little like three-hour window. So one of them is 
uh, having all of the groomsmen take photos together. So it was me and five of my best friends. Um, we got to have all of these, you know, just going out in like a field and doing a photo shoot with all of your five best friends. It's fun, it's super, super fun. We also all looked sick. Everybody's just, you know, they were all murdered out in black and it was, uh, it, it's awesome, you know? And I'll take you through the groomsmen. I don't know that I've ever told you guys about any of these specific friends, except Joe Hodgins. We'll start with him. You guys know Joe Hodgins. He's been on uh, the Orlando Drummer Podcast, and he's got an episode on All In here as well. Joe's been a friend of mine for uh, over 10 years. Well, maybe more like eight or nine, something like that. Tons of music projects together, bands, countless studio hours together. And obviously, he helped me build uh, my drum platforms and my drum business. Still does to this day. So... Uh, there was no question if Joe was going to be there. Uh, he's also a Southerner, kind of like me. Uh, he grew up in Alabama. So you're tempting him with a good time to say, come on out to the Smokies. He's a mountain guy, like, uh, like Kelly and I are, are both mountain people. So Joe was there. Then uh, Taylor, Taylor Wynn. I would love to have Taylor on this podcast. That would be awesome. Taylor's a little bit more of like a nomad, though. He ran a touring business for quite a while where he was like a driver and the owner of like the vehicle that he would tour bands around in, and he was their sound guy. So Taylor has been in, I would say, <laughs> I would say every state within the US three times. Like, it is unbelievable how much this dude has traveled, and it's very normal for him to just call you and go like, hey, you still in Orlando? Cool, like, I'm, a, I'm up the street at Disney, and like, and you haven't heard from him in a year. That's kind of how you end up seeing Taylor for the most part. He's a bit more, more settled in now. He bought a house up in Atlanta, and him and I were roommates when I uh, was in Full Sail, or when I was in college, him and I were roommates there. So Taylor was there. Uh, who else? We had brother Pete. Uh, Pete was another roommate of mine, and he actually lived together with me and Taylor for a little while. Pete's an awesome guy, man. Him and I have spent a, a tremendous amount of time together over the years playing Rocket League, and we got all sorts of wild, I won't go into detail, but many drug stories together, all sorts of cool things. So Pete and I go a long, long way back, and I think I lived with him as a roommate longer than any other roommate I've ever had. He lived with Kelly and I for a short amount of time, too. Uh, so that was brother Pete. Then I had Mr. Rick. Rick is one of my closest high school friends, actually. And of course, I'd be lying if I said that we were as close now as we were back then. But when you're sort of assembling this groomsman team, you know, you want people that come from different stages of your life, not necessarily just your current five close closest best friends. You know, it was kind of nice to have people that know you from different times and different eras. And so Rick, for me, was like always one of my closest friends in high school. And we have kept up over the years. I've seen him a handful of times uh, since high school. So he flew in from Maryland, was so appreciative of that. He's also a phenomenal guitarist. He he doesn't play anymore, but um, full ride to Berkeley, like virtuoso level guitar player. Uh, so it was cool. We had quite a few musicians at the wedding in general, but uh, it was awesome to see Rick. And then the last groomsman, was supposed to be uh, my good buddy, Devin Sumner, who's also a drummer. Some of you guys may know him, D-Sum Drums. Um, Devin lived in Florida for a very, very long time, and we hung out all the time while he was here. But about maybe four or five years ago, he moved out to California. And him flying from California into the Smoky Mountains for this particular event was just not something that he was able to make happen, um, mainly because, like I said, when you get you know 30-plus, all these people start getting married. And so he explained to me that he had spent tens of thousands of dollars on weddings and funerals flying from California back to Florida or back to the East Coast uh, because so many of his close friends had been married. 
over the last like couple years. And so I understand that, you know, just imagine if five of your best friends got married in the same year, some of them are going to get a no because you might not be able to afford all of these flights and hotels. You know, it's really expensive to travel cross country, even if it's just for a day or two. So that was definitely a bummer. He was the only groomsman that could not come. And then, you know, I had to do some some thinking about about who I would ask to be there instead because there's sort of that weird element of like you're replacing someone like everybody knew that Devin was my first choice and he couldn't make it and so you know most of my other groomsmen knew Devin as well so everybody was sort of like damn that really sucks that he can't come but to maintain symmetry you know Kelly had her five bridesmaids and so I wanted to have five groomsmen if anything if for no other reason, just just for the pictures, right? I thought about it for quite a while. I had a couple of guys that I had in my head, but I decided to invite my barber. His name is Chris. And <laughs> as Chris put during the wedding, he's like, bro, you have to stop introducing me as your fucking barber now. Like, I'm your boy, and then I happen to be your barber. And I was like, you know what, bro? I, I really appreciate that. You're right, not just my barber anymore. Not after that, right? Not after being a groomsman. But it was cool, man, and, and this is sort of what's gonna launch us into some of these philosophical ideas about marriage itself. You know, Chris grew up in Detroit, and I mean, I think it's fair to say that he had a rough childhood, not, not by the fault of his parents. You know, he I've met his mom. His mom's really, really cool. Reminds me of my mom in a lot of ways. Just a solid-ass mom. And, you know, so it wasn't necessarily that he had, like, a poor upbringing, but, you know, he was in a, a pretty crime-ridden area of Detroit in Michigan. And a lot of drugs, a lot of violence, a lot of fatherless children, uh, including him. You know, so lack of role models, a pretty chaotic environment, and... There's a lot of weird cultural things that come with places like that. And to clarify, not a race thing necessarily. I mean, you can have, you know, really poor cultures, environment, fatherless homes. Like, you can have all of that in any community of any color. But this is just where he grew up. And I don't want to tell his story in its entirety for him because I would love to have him on this podcast. But what the things that I'm going to say about him, I would also say to him. So... Chris, if you're watching, hope you're cool with this, brother. So Chris is my barber, and obviously you talk to your barber a lot. I mean, the dude's cut my hair hundreds of times over the last almost 10 years. You know, it's interesting hearing his views of women, of relationships, of marriage, because, you know, marriage is not that common in a culture like that. And he'll tell you that, that nobody he grew up with, none of his friends ever got married. It's just not what you do. You don't get married. The way that men in his culture, as he described it to me, the way that they perceive women and relationships is, you know, it's not not default monogamy, right? Like, like it's, it's pretty acceptable that people sort of cheat on each other and sleep around. Even the concept of, like, you can hear this in, in pop culture, like a side chick. Like, that sort of stuff is kind of normalized. And so there's a lack of sanctity, I suppose, when it comes to like long-term monogamous relationships, the definitions or the titles of words like husband and wife, you know, th that stuff gets a little devalued in communities like that. And so when I asked him if he would be a groomsman, you know, he had a, such an awesome reaction. He was just like, bro, bro, are you, are you fucking serious, bro? Are you serious? You know, like he had never been in a wedding. He don't, he'd only been to one or two weddings. But he had never been in one before. And so I immediately was so grateful that I thought to ask him because I, th I thought, you know, of all the people that that deserve to see what a wedding really is, to see what this 
this event, this ceremony, this promise, to see what this actually means firsthand, to be up close and personal and, and see what it actually is. You know, I was so glad to have him there. I, I guess selfishly that, that he could just expand his views at my my wedding, right? I would hope that he could just touch this, this concept of marriage a little bit closer. I don't know, I, I think it's okay if people never wanna get married, never wanna have kids. It's your life, do what you want. But I think if you see no value in doing that, I think I could pr pitch a pretty strong argument that you're missing something, that there's something here that you may not have a, a complete grasp on, right? And so my hope when um, when he was so excited to come to this wedding, I'm like, bro, get the fuck out to Tennessee and like let's let's show you what this is all about. If it's not something you've ever been exposed to, um, I, I think it's good for you to see what this is all about. And so if you're a young man, you know, Chris is actually older than me, but you know, if you're an unmarried man and you think, you know, maybe I don't want to do marriage, maybe I don't want to do kids, man, go to a few weddings. Ideally, weddings where you're close to the people in the wedding, right? Because I think you might gain a different view. There's a reason that like 90% of people at a close intimate wedding will find themselves themselves crying. You you realize what this is. It's a commitment that two people are going to die together and that has a heaviness that you can't ignore when you're there. Now one of the things that I struggled with the most, one of the reasons that I had to take you know, a few years to really commit to marrying Kelly or marrying anyone, really. It wasn't even about her as much as it was my problem with the idea of getting married in general. I look at marriage as though you're making a promise that you will be with this person for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, until the day that you die. That that no matter what happens, you are stuck with this person, period. No questions asked. But I would ask myself things like this. You know, what happens if I come home and Kelly's got a needle hanging out of her arm because she decided to shoot black tar heroin? That's her new thing. Okay, well, I don't think I'm gonna ride this one out for very long if that's where we find ourselves. What happens if we have a kid, and these are all hypothetical thought experiments, but let's just say Kelly becomes abusive towards our infant. I'm getting the fuck out of here with this baby, right? Like, I'm getting away from this crazy person, and vice versa. What happens if, um, you know, I fall deeps into the pit of alcoholism and begin beating Kelly daily, right? Like, is she genuinely expected to stay? And so, I think any rational person would say, man, it's it's pretty reasonable that I would leave here. I know I made a promise, but come on, like this is this is totally irrational to stay in a relationship if if any of those variables happened. And it feels a lot like you're making a promise that that you couldn't keep for reasons beyond your control. If those things happened, I'm out. You know, love may be unconditional, but your willingness to live in a house with someone and build your life with them, there are certainly conditions to that. There are things that are unacceptable. You know, repeated infidelity, verbal or emotional abuse repeatedly. I'm not talking about isolated events, but like if this is just your life, you're getting cheated on or you're getting beaten or you're dealing with uh, any type of violence, like of course you're out. And so if those things happened, if that's what the universe threw at you, anybody I think has, has the right to leave. And so making a promise that we're staying together until we're dead, 
always felt like a promise that I can't truly make because when I make a promise, I take into consideration the fact that I can control all the variables and I'm saying that I will. I will make sure that this thing happens, whatever the promise is. Good example, if I told my friend I'm picking him up from the airport, I guess you could say, well, you can't really keep that promise if your car breaks down, right? What if, what if my car breaks down on the way to the airport, right? So it's almost like that's the same sort of analogy. It's a promise that you might not be able to keep. But in that scenario, I would buy an Uber for the guy and say, hey, man, I can't make it. My car broke down. I'm so sorry. I'm calling you an Uber right now. Right. Like there's a lot of things that you could sort of fix to still stay as true to your word as you possibly could. But the marriage one is like the ultimate promise. It's the heaviest of all of those promises. And man, it took me a long time to get comfortable with the idea that I get to define what this means. You know, and I also had to realize that the element of intention is one that more religious folks, religion in general, you know, it, it, that element seems to be robbed from a whole lot of a lot of morality in general. You can learn a lot more about my views on intention in, inside of morality in the meaning and morality episode of this podcast. But intention does have value. It does weigh in on the moral scale. And so, you know, I have no problem saying that my my clear intention in getting married is to ride this out, that that's always going to be my intention. It is my number one goal to make this work to the absolute best of my ability. And if for some reason, despite all of my intentions, I can't make it work, then we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. But the promise itself is not truly no matter what happens. It is my intention, you know, ideally will carry us through even those most difficult times. And, you know, I really had to work that out in my mind philosophically just to be comfortable with that idea. I, I try to think of myself as someone who strives to be in constant alignment with truth. And so the idea of making a promise that I one day may not be able to keep was very uncomfortable for me. But, you know, through dozens of hours of conversation, you know, Kelly and I uh, uh, worked this out. You know, and speaking directly to some some younger men, I have a sneaking suspicion that the demographic of this podcast is men that are slightly younger than me who are likely not married yet. I'm sure some of you are, so congrats to those of you that are. But, you know, I know a lot of young men who are, let's say, between 18 and 26, 7, sort of in that range. And I remember how I felt about marriage in that age range. It's really tough to understand why people do this. It's really, really tricky because the idea that, let's be honest, that you would only have sex with one person for the rest of your life, that's one thing you gotta wrestle with, that's for sure. The idea that you're going to settle down and sort of forfeit the adventure that is being a 20-something-year-old male, that's a rough one too, right? It definitely feels like, like you're burdening yourself with something that you don't have to burden yourself with. And to those young men, let me give you some pieces of advice, just some things that that hit me hard around age 27, 8, 9, 30, like right in that window. You know, a, a lot of things began to, to make a lot more sense. One of them is that you should only marry somebody who improves your life. You know, if you're in a relationship that is, let's just call it neutral, right? Like it's somebody to have sex with if you need to, you kind of enjoy their company. Maybe you you split some purchases here and there. But if they disappeared, your life would be relatively the same. That's not, that's not a wife, you know, that's not your wife, I should say. She could be somebody else's wife, but you certainly need to, 
to ask yourself if the quality of your life day to day is improved by the presence of this person. If it is, then that's a pretty goddamn good thing to lock down, right? And you could say this as a, as a standard for your friends as well. You know, if your friends don't actively improve the quality of your life uh, by their demeanor, their advice, your conversations, you know, whatever it is, whatever the, the substrate of your interaction is, if it doesn't improve your life, it's probably not a person you want to keep around very long. And so that was one thing that I could objectively say with Kelly uh, was a no-brainer. You know, my life with her is objectively better, easier, smoother, you know, and we're both as a team more capable than we would be if we were separated. So that was a huge, uh, a huge determining factor for me. Another really big one that people well, in their early 20s, tend to discount. Now, I certainly discounted this, but, you know, if you want kids, let me stop there and actually talk about kids for a second. I don't think it's much of a secret that women have like a biological clock that at a certain age, normally between 20 and 30, women really want children. And hormones are responsible for much of that feeling, but, but I kind of wonder if men have some version of their own biological clock for that as well. Because the idea of owning a home, settling down, having kids and a wife, that had virtually no appeal to me until all of a sudden it fucking did. It was very dramatic and quick. I was, I was surprised. I was surprised that within the span of a year, I went from not really caring about having kids to all of a sudden going, I fucking want that. I want that now. That sounds awesome, right? And so... I do wonder if, it, if there's any bio biology that could that could support that, because uh, with women, I know there certainly is, but it's it's interesting because once it hits you, it hits you. You can't get the thought out of your head. It just feels like the next appropriate thing to do. But I also don't think I would have felt that if I was single or if I was with someone whom I did not want to be the mother of my kids. And that particular feature of Kelly and I's relationship was one that I have never questioned. Could this be the mother of my children? That was always a yes. And it was a yes all the way back from, you know, when Snitch, my dog, was paralyzed, uh, which was, I don't know, early, early on in our relationship, the first year that we were dating. And I watched how she responded to that, you know, which is, it's sort of a, a diet version of having a special needs child, right? That's what it's like to have a paralyzed dog. And going to therapy and doctor's visits and, you know, paperwork for the veterinary neurologist. I mean, there, there's just, it's complicated. And I saw a lot of maternal instincts in her, you know, and I, I never had a question in my mind of whether or not she would be a good mother or if this was a, you know, let's just go full like animalistic. Is this a suitable candidate to bear my children, right? There was never a question. It was always abundantly clear that this would be an awesome, awesome mother. That gave me a lot of confidence. And I would say to anybody dating someone, you know, and you're really considering, is this a person that I could marry or not? <clears throat> Ask yourself that one. Do I want this person, this woman, to be the mother of my children? If the answer is yes, you know, that's a pretty good way to orient your compass towards, uh, you know, towards marriage, I suppose, if that's actually on the table for you. So for me, that was a really, really big one. It helped, you know, many things. It helped push me over the edge. Now, there's another piece of advice that I heard two to three years ago, probably three years ago, and this one this really fucked me up when I heard it. You know, when you're entering the dating pool, 
you should decide before you go on that date, before you get the phone number from the girl, before you even engage with the whole dating world, you should ask yourself, am I looking for my wife, which would also be the mother of my children, or am I looking for something else? If you're looking for something else, if you're looking for, I mean, let's be honest, if you're looking for a fuck buddy, if you're looking for a quick hookup, if you're looking for something really casual to kill some time and just have somebody to hang out with and you don't really care where it goes, if that's what you're looking for, you just gotta be upfront with that, with every all of the women that you interact with or men, you know, I don't know if I'm talking to any girls out there or gay men, but whoever you're dating, doesn't matter. You should really know what it is that you're looking for. Now, the thing is, if you said, I am absolutely looking for the wife and the mother of my children or husband and father of my children, if that's what you're looking for, it will absolutely alter your standards when you go on these dates. You would pick someone totally different to go on that date with if that standard was active in your mind. And so if you're not in a phase like that and you're just looking for a girlfriend to have fun with, things like that, it's not serious, I think that's okay. That's the advice I would give to a 15, 16, 17 year old. Hey man, don't worry about the wife stuff, don't worry about the kid stuff. You know, realistically, the next three people you're gonna date is not gonna be, it's not gonna be them. It's not gonna be the wife, it's not gonna be the mother of your kids. So, relax, try to learn something from these relationships. But at a certain point, if you're single and you're ready for the wife and the mother and the family, if you're ready for all of that, set that as your standard, make that your standard, because I promise it will change the way you date people. There are girls who you may enjoy their company and you may have a good time with them. Maybe you're very attracted to them and maybe the sex is good. Sure, 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 sure. But if that spark of like motherhood and wife shit, if it's not there, you'll know that, you'll know that. When I heard this piece of advice, Kelly and I had been dating about five years and I felt like I needed to go back, like say, okay, imagine if I'm single right now and I just met Kelly right now and I knew that I was looking for my wife and the mother of my children, would I pick her? Would I pick her if I could start over? Because when we started dating, I didn't have any of these thoughts in my mind. When we started dating, it was just, it was girlfriend. It was fun. I think she's pretty. We have a good time together. That's kind of it. But I never decided mentally if this was going to be the mother of my children or my wife. And I spent two years trying to answer that question, uh, analyzing our relationship as it was happening with that in mind. And I realized that I would, I would pick her. I absolutely would. It just took me a couple of years to answer that question. And so that's sort of the explanation of why we dated for five years. Then marriage stuff sort of comes up and I had to spend two years sort of working that out. Then we get engaged and then a year later, here we are eight years in and we are finally married. Now, if I'm being honest, I am somewhat proud of the fact that we dated for so long before getting married because sure, if you're dating, three years, four years, five years, to me that that's not significantly different. You know that person well enough, you've had enough fights, enough arguments, you've been in the weeds on enough bullshit that you probably know them well enough to make that commitment with a certain level of certainty. Obviously, some trust, some faith, uh, yeah, all that's involved because there's a lot of unknowns here, so you know, you're definitely still jumping off of a cliff, but it's a lot lower of a cliff than if you married somebody you were dating for six months. And to be totally honest, 
I know way too many fucking people that have gotten married to someone they've known or dated like under a year, even under two years. I really don't like that because I've dated multiple people for over two years, two, three years, and then things happen that genuinely surprise you, right? Like that person has a characteristic or just the capacity to do a certain behavior where it's like, huh, I did not know that you would do that kind of thing, right? It takes a long time to get to know somebody. And I would say even with friends, you know, not like like platonic relationships, a friend you've known for a year is not that close of a friend. It just can't be, it can't be. Even though you spend a tremendous amount of time together in an intimate relationship, there's also these phases. There's honeymoon phases, there's deep swells of infatuation, and that's all fine, but you have to remember that that shit is all gonna go away by year two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. It changes, it changes a lot. And so I think there is a value in waiting. Now, the particular community of people who I see struggling the most with this are undoubtedly Christians because you're not allowed to have sex with someone that you're married to, and I know, as a Christian who dated someone for several years and made my best attempt to abstain from having sex, when you do have sex or even sexual contact, it not only is it deeply frustrating because you're in conflict with your own biology, right? Like you're programmed to wanna have sex, but if you do, it comes with a tremendous amount of guilt and shame, right? You you feel and, and you believe wholeheartedly that you have done something immoral. Man, that's a really good reason to just go ahead and get married so I can have guilt-free sex for the first time in my entire life. I see why people do it in Christian communities, and to be honest, it happens all the time. There is no shortage of 22, 23, 24-year-old married Christians, and I fear for those people. You know, I, I, I certainly hope I hope deeply that those relationships work out. Sometimes they can, but I believe they're taking far more of a chance than someone like me did or any of my friends who have waited five plus years to get married or even living together first. I think to this day I would still recommend living together first because shit, breaking a lease is so much easier than... <laughs> you know, getting a divorce, right? God, I just couldn't imagine. Especially getting divorced like in your 20s. Like, man, it's not worth worth the risk. So if your moral compass allows you to have sex and to live with someone to whom you're not married and have no guilt or shame about that, I think that's the right way to do it. I would say Having kids is a different story altogether. I don't know that I would recommend having kids outside of a marriage. And I should say this too. There's certainly a difference between you know couples who are deeply committed to each other and may even use the titles of husband and wife, but they skip the legal part, like the government love contract. They skip that part. You know, I think that's okay. We have friends that, that have done that. I don't see, I don't really see that as that big of a deal. Uh, but there should be some sense of permanence to your relationship. You should be solidified in some way that has the implication that you're going to do this forever before you have kids. I don't think you need to know that stuff before you move in with somebody, uh, if you're renting. Uh, I, I don't think it, it you, you have to know all of that stuff before you have sex with somebody. I think you should love somebody before you have sex with them, but these are all personal decisions that your moral compass will probably orient you uh, orient you to. So it's a lot of personal decisions, but for me, you know, I, I have a lot of pride in how long we waited to do this. You know, and one of the interesting things about, about a marriage ceremony too is you realize 
that this is supposed to be heavy, that existential weight, the like drama that comes with it where you just get choked up for no reason because you realize what this day is. Man, there is no escaping that. It's just how the day fucking feels. And if you were someone who said, I never want to get married, I don't think it's for me. Man, I just wish there was some way for you to experience what it is that you're precisely missing on that day. Because if you get rid of the institution of marriage, even if it's just in your personal life, but let's just say to scale, you just get rid of it, not something humans do anymore. You know, to sort of go a touch Jordan Peterson for a moment, what the fuck do you replace it with? Well, what now? What now, right? It's it's one of those rare, special things that you can do in life. You have the option to do this, and you don't have to. But the moment is so special, so dramatic, so intense, so, fuck it, we'll use some weird words, sacred, divine. It's so much of that that if you say, I don't want that, well, what are you trading it for? What do you get instead that has a value that holds up to what a marriage is? I mean, sure, being single for the rest of your life, that has some benefits, for sure. I don't know that those hold up to what it is to enter into a marriage. I don't think there's really any comparison. I've been single for long periods of time. I get it. There's some cool shit, for sure. But you're forfeiting so many things if you commit to never getting married. You're forfeiting a true teammate. Maybe you got a business partner that functions as your teammate or a longtime roommate. I don't think that's the same. I've had those. I've had business partners. I've had roommates who I, you know, who we intertwined our lives together in so many ways, helping split bills and things like that. And sure, sure, it's kind of like a marriage, I guess. But there's still something that you're missing. Same with kids. You know, you say, I don't want kids. Well, okay, you know that having kids is epic, right? I mean, everybody who's ever had a kid says that. It's incredibly powerful. It's incredibly special. It changes your life forever. But... You're allowed to say, I don't want kids. I get it, that's okay. Totally a decision that you can make. But you're forfeiting what it is to have a child for what? What is it that you're gaining instead? I, I mean, I, I freedom, is that what people would say? Freedom? I don't know, man, I don't know. I used to buy those arguments and I just don't anymore. I just don't buy them anymore. I think there is something so mystically fucking amazing about what marriage is and what having children are and building your own family. I think there is something so incredibly special, like indescribably special about that, that I don't know what I would be trading it for. Trading it for being single and free to meet other women that I'm not gonna marry. You know, free to have sex with more people. Uh, I guess. I guess, it's just I have a hard time placing a tremendous value on those things. And as you get older, I think this shifts for a lot of people. So maybe I'm not convincing you in one way or another at all. That's fine. It, you know, if you're early, mid-20s, however old, and you say, you know what, marriage, kids, just absolutely not for me. That's that's okay, your decision, man. But I would say, you know, just consider what what you're giving up and what you're gaining instead. What, what, what precisely is the deal that you're making with the world? And really identify what 
that deal is. Because if that's your commitment to never be married, to never have children, it's like you're signing a contract with the universe. So know the fucking terms. Know exactly what it is that you're giving up and what you're getting in return. And I think if you really hash all of those out, you might find that it's a more complicated mental dialogue than you've had with yourself before. And I think it's one that's worthwhile. Have that conversation with yourself and check out the terms of that fucking contract, you know? Now, I can tell you from dating Kelly for eight years and, you know, now being married, for me, or for us at least, it's not like tremendously different after being married because we did so many other things. Certainly, if we hadn't moved in together and hadn't bought a house and hadn't gotten pets or bank accounts and all that, sure, that stuff would be would be a lot more dramatic, but we did a lot of that stuff. So I don't wanna say it's anticlimactic, but like day-to-day life is not any different after being married. It's the same life that we've been building for eight years. It doesn't just turn on its head all of a sudden once you're married. Really cool shit though, after being married. Husband and wife, goddamn, that's still fun to say. Really, really fun to say. That hasn't gotten old yet at all because girlfriend and boyfriend felt so stupid after seven years. Just feels like, what the fuck, like girlfriend? Like, yeah, but we own a house and we have all this, you know. So husband and wife feels right, really fun to say that. Uh, her last name being Tumanero, that's a trip. Hearing her introduce herself to people as Kelly Tumanero, that's a trip. Still getting used to that one for sure. And I guess the other only real thing that, that's, that's very different right away is that in heavy conversations, in fights, you know, we, we don't have dramatic blowout screaming fights. Neither one of us, that's not like our communication style at all. But when we have disagreements or anything, you know, over the last eight years, there are times where if the fight is so intense, uh, not in like verbally intense, not like our volumes are high or anything, but if the topic, if the problem is very heavy and we're not sure what to do about this, there's like a background idea that maybe this is something that we would eventually break up over. Like if we don't fix this, this could be the thing, you know, like maybe one of us would call it at some point and be done here. And that entire feature of those arguments and discussions is now removed. So it's sort of like you just forfeit any of those thoughts. Like that's that's completely out of your mind. And man, that's that's cool. That feels really cool to have a heated argument with someone whom you share this commitment that neither one of us is going anywhere, right? That does sort of change the dynamic of certain conversations where no matter what happens, I don't wanna say no matter what, because, you know, talked about that earlier, but virtually, no matter what happens in the context of any given argument or situation, we're both sticking it out. We're here for the long run. So that, that, that definitely adds like some supports to the relationship. It it sort of strengthens the foundation in a way because we made this promise that, hey, even if this fight gets worse and we find ourselves just, you know, temporarily miserable in trying to solve this problem or get to the bottom of a particular issue, it's okay because we both know deep down we've made this promise. I'm gonna fucking stick around for this. So I don't know, adds a level of confidence to the relationship for sure. Now, I can't quite move on from wedding and marriage shit until I talk a little bit about some of our friends that helped us, man. That's another amazing part of that day that I really didn't, I didn't get until getting married. Nobody ever talked about this. Nobody told me any of this. But it's a really powerful, powerful bonding moment, not just for you and the person you're marrying, but also in the context of your friendships, like all of the people that you invite that come. You know, and I'm not trying to pick on uh, Devin, Devin Sumner, who was one of my groomsmen that could not come. But, you know, him and I had a phone conversation and he's 
likely going to be getting married to his girlfriend in the next few years. You know, he he was sort of saying, man, he's like, I feel feel like when I get married, he's talking for Devin now, he said, he said, when I get married, we're not going to have any expectations when we invite people. And that hit me a little bit weird because I began to think about what it is to be close friends with someone. Think about your best friend, whoever that is. And part of what makes them your best friend, the the substrate of the fucking friendship itself is unfortunately rooted in some level of expectation. And I don't want it to be because that doesn't sound right. But the more I explore this, the more I realize that it is. It is. Your best friend is your best friend because you have very high expectations of them and they meet them constantly. You expect that they'll text back. You expect that they'll call you back if you miss their call. You expect that they will meet you wherever you want to be met in any context, whether it's a conversation, a text message, a phone call, an event, planning. Like there, there is always an expectation built in to a friendship. And to be honest, the better of a friend they are, the higher the, the expectation seems to be. Take this all the way to the, your relationship with your parents. You, whether you like it or not, whether you admit it or not, you have very high expectations of your parents. More than likely you do if you get a healthy relationship with them. You expect your mom to behave like your mom. What do moms do? They're there when you need them. They, they offer advice. They're nurturing. They're helpful. That might be financial. It might be a conversation. But you have high expectations of certain people. You know, and the closer the friend, the closer the person, the higher those expectations go. And Again, I don't want that to be the case. I like the idea of operating with no expectations. That would be, do I have the fucking book? Uh, One second. Buried in this book somewhere, this is uh, Don Miguel Ruiz, The Four Agreements. Buried in here somewhere uh, is the idea of never taking anything personally, to have very low expectations um, of other people at all times. And I don't know how I feel about that now. I used to fucking love this book, but now I need to reread it because I'm not so sure about that particular philosophy. There is something that is fundamental to human relationships that has to do with expectations. You know, because I I told Devin in response to that, I'm like, man, as bad as I want that to be true, as bad as I want to have no expectations that you would come and have no negative feelings about it, that's not reality for me. I do have some sort of expectations and I think it ties into the you know the, the definition of a friendship itself. Now, I'm not picking on Devin. Him and I have talked many times since. It's okay. He was in a very unique position as well. But on the topic of friends and weddings, you know, it was interesting, man. One particular couple I have to to give credit to, uh, Nate and Chelsea. Shout out Nate and Chelsea if you guys are listening. Kelly and I went to their wedding a little over a year ago in New York just before COVID happened. So glad we got to see that city before it, you know, barely exists anymore. But Kelly was a bridesmaid in that wedding. And so Chelsea was a bridesmaid in our wedding. Let me clarify. Chelsea was a bridesmaid and Nate was the officiant because we didn't have a real officiant. We just wanted a good friend of ours to read the script and do the ceremony. Um, And Nate is also a technical director. It's what he does for a living. He runs very, very high budget, high production shows. So the idea of him having a script with an iPad and kind of running music at the same time, that was all baby shit for him. So it was very easy for him to help in that way. Um, But those two in particular, man, to see how seriously they took the event, how how much time and effort they put in 
that we didn't really ask them for. It wasn't like we said, hey, can you guys come and work a 10-hour day for us? Can you do that? We don't ask that. We have we don't have a lot of expectations in those ways, right? But both of them in particular, not just them exclusively, there were many other people who were super helpful, um, close friends of ours. But for them to come and act as though they, they were paid to be there for multiple days in a row, like Nate literally running the show, Chelsea just took on a tremendous amount of projects helping Kelly that she did not have to take on. It wasn't like anybody asked her to go to work like that. But the two of them, man, it when people meet or dramatically exceed your expectations for a day that's that special that means that much to you, man, it really just, it adds so much to the friendship. And it's one of those things where, I, I'm sure I can speak for Kelly, we both value them more than ever as friends because they they showed the fuck up when we needed them, right? And they didn't even have to be asked. Man, so it, it's really cool. And, and I'm using them as examples because they were just kind of the superstars of that day on the back end at the very least. But Kelly had another friend, um, a guy, Matt, who she used to work with, who was there. Same thing. Acted like he was paid to be there the whole time. Other friends who traveled very, very far and also gave us money, which we didn't ask for money, you know, but but like just the the generosity, the kindness, the people who who willingly went the extra mile or an extra 20 miles just to make the day awesome for us. Man, you don't realize how how fundamentally important that is for a friendship. We don't realize what that does to strengthen a friendship. And so in so many ways, not only not only are Kelly and I closer in you know, our, our lives and our relationship because of getting married. But the heaviness of that event and the willingness of your close friends to come and support you at that event, it makes you feel closer to them too because there's not a lot of fucking days that are like that one, your wedding day. Very few days are like that one. And so when people show the fuck up for you in those moments, when else do you want them to show up? You know, if they show up for that, they'll be here for anything, right? So even if you have a, a more dramatic or traumatic event that you need them for, if you get cancer one day, if you get severely injured, if you need help in in any other event, any other circumstance that life might throw at you, you know who the fuck is gonna be there because when you threw a party in the Smoky Mountains and you just wanted it to be a nice, special day, you know, a huge majority of our close friends just showed the fuck up for us and that, that was a, a part of getting married that uh, I didn't know. I didn't know it would be like that, but it was. And so it's cool, man. It strengthened a lot of relationships in just a single day or a single weekend. And so that was really powerful and awesome to see. All right, so these are some of my thoughts and philosophies about marriage. I, you know, I really don't know who specifically this podcast is is aimed at. You know, I, I certainly hope to speak to young single men or younger men who are in relationships and they're really not sure how they feel about marriage or children or you know children is really a separate topic this is mostly about marriage but I really hope that you can gain some insight um, from this because you're talking to someone who at a certain point in my life I would have said I really don't care if I get married or not not really the plan dated a whole lot of women where that never even came up right we just didn't even talk about that and so uh, having finally pulled the trigger you know at 31 Looking back, it's interesting to see the progression of 
philosophy, the progression of thinking uh, that has happened. And so my hope is that if I share that with you, perhaps I can save you a little bit of time. I can help you cut a couple of corners here and maybe alter the way that you enter the dating pool, maybe alter the way that you behave in your current relationship or reconsider if it's the one that you should be in or not. Or maybe, you know, for you to pull the trigger a little sooner than I did and marry the woman that you're with um, if you want her to be the mother of your children, if your life is substantially improved by her presence. So these are all things to consider. If you have any marriage questions at all, relationship questions, um, I would love to dive into that stuff. You know, having done a tremendous work in my own current relationship with Kelly, but also a lot of trial and error with other women over the years. I feel like it's something that I've got, expertise is not a word that I would use, but um, certainly a good amount of experience, a lot of insights into how things can go wrong and how they can go right and what, if anything, you can do to sort of control and make your own relationships better. So any relationship questions, definitely send those my way. I would love to tackle those on a future episode. And to close this out, I wanna give you some future episode ideas that I have. So that's the first one, relationships in general. I think I think having a lot of questions would probably make that a little bit easier. So if you have any type of relationship question about your own relationship, you can phrase it like it's for a friend. Don't include your name, include a fake name. I don't care, I'm not trying to embarrass anybody, but please feel free to send those. I would really enjoy uh, diving into some of those um, kinds of questions around relationship topics. Um, Another topic that I've had in mind, a little bit of a lighter one, would be like a full animal podcast. Uh, My philosophies of animals are relationships with them. Uh, Dog training as well is a huge, huge passion of mine and sort of animal psychology as well. Again, I'm not an expert in this. I've just been doing it a really long time and uh, it's not like I have any qualifications to show you, but shit, in the drum industry, I don't have any qualifications to show you. I didn't go to drum teacher school, you know, but uh, so yeah, animals, dogs, I think I could do a whole podcast on that. So I'm curious if you guys are interested in that one. The next one is one I'm absolutely doing, whether you're interested or not, Um, precision of language. So an entire philosophical pitch, an argument as to why I believe that being precise with your language is extremely important. You know what prompted the idea for this podcast? I'll set it up briefly for you now, but I'm absolutely doing this one. So don't worry. There's a lot more coming on this topic. I would hear really hip hop is where this comes from. Many phrases, guys doing all this and all that. What the fuck does that mean? Doing what and what? This and that. Okay, all right. Um, that it just became a pet peeve of mine to hear phrases like that. Another one, feeling a certain type of way. How are you feeling? That tells me nothing, nothing whatsoever. Even phrases like out here getting it, like <laughs> I get it. I might say that too. I understand, I understand. But I worry sometimes that people Within their vocabularies, they have all of these bullshit words and phrases that it's indicative of of a lack of critical thinking even within their own mind. So when people use words like whatnot or whatever, they're like, you know, when you hang out with somebody or whatever and like you go to the store and whatnot, like, oh, I don't like that. I've grown to really hate the lack of precision in that kind of speech. And I have what I think is a pretty compelling argument for why you should be on a constant mission 
to improve the precision of your language. And it's not to sound more articulate, though obviously you would. It's not to sound smarter or to impress people, though obviously that might happen. Um, it's more so because your spoken words are directly tied into your thoughts. And the more you're able to precisely hone in on your thoughts, the better you become at understanding complex ideas, identifying flaws within yourself and identifying the solutions to some of those flaws or problems. You know, language is just one of the most powerful fixtures of being a conscious human with a spoken language and a vocabulary. And so my goal for that podcast is to effectively pitch an argument as to why I think everyone should be making their language more precise at all times. So that's for another day, but trust me, that one is definitely coming. Now I got uh, one last uh, podcast that's coming, and I really, this one is, is time sensitive in that it can't happen very soon. I think it would be foolish to make this podcast soon. Now here's the, the main Easter egg for this, uh, for this episode, if you made it this far. Um, while at the wedding, over this, not this past weekend, but you know, been about a week and a half or so since it, it happened. Um, I drank alcohol for the first time in nearly 10 years, nine and a half years. I drank a very small amount the night before the wedding. I drank from about 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. on the wedding night itself, or maybe a little bit later after 6 p.m., like seven to 11, something like that, a little four hour window on wedding day. And then in several of the following days, I had, you know, a, a glass of wine here, um, a drink there. But, you know, we've been home for a while, so it's been several days since I've really drank. It's interesting. It's interesting. I'll give you some of my initial thoughts, but clearly this deserves an entire podcast in itself. But I'll give you some, some of my initial impressions, um, and I want these impressions to be processed fully before I really open this topic up completely. But I also I wanna give you a little something because I don't just wanna say like, hey, I opened this podcast up with a three-part series about like addiction and rehab and recovery. And by the way, now I'm drinking, so haha. <laughs> you know, I, I wanna give you a little bit of something here today. First of all, the, the experience is not even remotely what I remember. It is very, very, very different now. That could be the product of, you know, shit, every cell in my body has died and been regenerated since I last drank, right? I mean, it was 10 years ago. They say every seven years you're a new person on a cellular level. So, you know, maybe it's just growing up. Maybe it's because I'm on a very specific diet. It could be a number of things, but the experience was not the same. It was not even remotely stimulating. If anything, I almost exclusively got tired. Certainly some of the social inhibitions were, were loosened. Conversation is easier, but there's a, a clear scale of the ease of conversation versus the quality of conversation. Like there's, there's a little window where you get both, where the conversation is not only loosened up because of your lack of inhibitions, but the quality of the conversation is also still kind of there. And as you slowly pass that threshold, like the conversation is all of a sudden very easy, but the quality of the conversation begins to plummet as you get more drinks in you. Now, I should also say, I didn't get drunk once, but I also didn't have a desire to. I felt like there were a couple points where I felt, okay, I know I have a buzz. I can hear my speech slightly different, a little slower. You become hyper aware of that, right? When I'm not used to alcohol at all. Definitely slowed speech and definitely like very slight issues with balance, stand up like, oh, I can kind of tell, like a little wobble, okay. But it always felt like if I pushed past that point, 
then I'm just going to fucking fall asleep. Like there was no stimulating effect whatsoever. And that was very different. I remember being very energized from alcohol, which is a sign of a true alcoholic actually, but that is gone. So no energy from it at all. And it really, it made the experience very self-limiting because at a certain point, I just don't want anymore because that just means I'm going to go to sleep. I certainly felt inflamed as shit, that's for sure. Waking up with fat fingers and swollen puffy eyes and like, I can certainly tell my body didn't love it, but I made a point to try every type of drink that there was, not all at once, but like over a course of a few days that was this trip. We were gone for a full like seven, almost eight days. And so I tried, uh, I tried, you know, whiskey. Did not like the flavor as much as I remember. Uh, maybe it was just the type of whiskey that we had, but that wasn't my favorite. Uh, then I had, I had like a vodka mixed drink, which I actually liked quite a bit more. I also feel like the the lack of sugar and carbs in vodka probably sat the best with my body. I tried a beer, delicious, loved it. But man, I felt so fucking bloated after half of a beer. I could not finish a single beer. So that was probably the most enjoyable drink that I had. But, oof, it just uh, didn't sit well. So, beer is still out. Um, and then I tried wine. Wine I actually enjoyed the most because it was a touch stronger. Also the sleepiest, which kind of sucks, but you can get wines with virtually no sugar, no carbs. Obviously, there's a little bit of sugar in alcohol that will metabolize, but pretty minimal. So, yeah, for me, the standout was weirdly wine. That felt like the thing that I actually enjoyed. And I also felt that there was no, um, there was no rush. I never felt rushed to finish a drink and that I sure as fuck don't remember that alcohol was never like that for me it was always mission oriented get this liquid inside of my body as soon as possible to feel the effects and man that's at least for now that uh that's gone I had I did not have that experience whatsoever so uh, there you know there's a lot of things that I don't want to do yet I don't want to assume that I have no problems with alcohol anymore Way too soon to call that. I don't want to assume that I am leaving this door open forever. You know, maybe I'll find out over the coming months that it's a door I can leave open, but it requires so much maintenance and effort and mental energy to maintain this relationship with alcohol that it's simply not worth it. Maybe there are certain rules and structures that I could have in place, like I do with many other drugs, where, like this drug, we don't do at the house. Or this drug, I only do in an environment with a bunch of friends, right? Like there's certain drugs where you have those kind of parameters. And I do think it's important with all drugs to have s somewhat specific parameters to moderate or manage your relationship to that substance. And so I have a tremendous amount of exploring to do when it comes to me and alcohol because me and that drug have a very, a very storied, complex history. However, it has been 10 years. And in virtually every fucking way imaginable, I am a different person. I'm a different person philosophically, financially, career, relationship. Everything is different than it was 10 years ago for me. So with that said, I'm treating this with a tremendous amount of caution. And yeah, I've got a lot of thinking to do, a lot of processing to do, and just some introspection. So that is certainly my, uh, that is certainly my plan over the coming weeks, months, and uh, I will keep you guys posted on that one. But I think that would be... An interesting podcast because in trying to research, finding people who had severe alcohol problems around that age range that I did, you know, so teenager into early 20s, who resumed drinking much later in life, 
there's not a lot of stories I can find on this. You know, there's certainly, you can find some people that say it's fine, some people that say that they picked up right where they left off and fucked their life up again. At least initially, that doesn't seem to be my reality, but it's complicated for, for everyone. So I hope to share my version of this drinking again story uh, with you once I have some more insight and some more information, but I don't think it's time to do that just yet. But if you're wondering, I didn't actually get drunk, don't feel like I need to get drunk, and life is... um pretty much the same as of now. So uh, hopefully it will uh, it will stay that way, but you guys will be in the loop on this one. So let me know which of these topics uh, you'd like to see for our next episode. We got relationships. Again, send me those relationship questions if you got them. I'd love those. Uh, dog training and animal stuff. I think I could do a lot on that one. Precision of language is in the works. I'm really fucking excited about that one. And then drinking again. That one will be on the back burner for a while as I process some of these life decisions that I made, right? All right, guys, that is all I have for you in this episode. I really hope you enjoyed it. Thank you guys so much for being patient over the last month waiting for content. And a reminder, uh, the best thing you can do for this this podcast on YouTube is leave a comment below, not necessarily in the live chat, but, but a real comment on the video itself. Always super helpful. And again, you know, you can share this podcast publicly on your social media if you want to. But again, my favorite way to share podcasts is to cut and paste the direct link and send it to a friend who you think would uh, specifically benefit from a podcast like this. Really, it would mean the world to me. And it's one of my favorite ways to share podcasts and information with people is to just hand pick the info for them. It means that much more. Thank you guys so much for watching. I really appreciate it. Adam here, and I will catch you in the next one. Bye, guys.